Hi, D&J Epic Quest listeners. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. The decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Justin, or Soft Pillows, and this is... This is Derek, or Bird That Steals. So, wasn't it uh, one of our Twitter followers gave us some more insight on... Uh, Whiskey Jack, right? Who is also, you know, aka Bird That Steals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't remember something. To... I have to go back and look, but they said that the Canadian Blue Jays also called the Whiskey Jack. Yeah, Blue Jays are kind of asshole birds, so and, maybe that makes. And sense. maybe they they steal. Maybe they are birds that steal. I guess. Uh, I guess I don't know very much about birds. Um, outside of that, they're not really birds. <laughs> yeah, they're still not real. They're still not real, even though we debunked that last episode. Yep. But yeah. So how was uh, your weekend, man? You know, it's, uh, it was good. I went down uh, to Mankato and visited my uh, mom. Dropped off my kids with my mom to spend the weekend with her. And then I went and my stepmom and my dad had like a combined birthday party shindig. So we went down there and, you know, ate some ham sandwiches with butter on them and potato salad. Uh, Sounds about as uh, Midwestern as you can get. Uh, yep. Yep. And some plain Jane ruffles, potato chips, no dip. <laughs> uh, they had cupcakes, though. They were delicious. Cool. So, oh, and then uh, the lady and I had a date night. We went and saw the new Jurassic World movie. Uh, what did you think? Uh, it's nothing to write home about. It wasn't terrible. Right. It wasn't terrible. I mean, the one thing that I will give them credit for is they didn't follow like the same, like, like movie archetype with the dinosaurs. Like everything starts off in like wonderment and merriment, and then. Ooh, uh, death, destruction, and then resolve. You know, like yeah, it was. There was I felt. Well, go ahead. Sorry, I mean to interrupt you. Oh no, you're 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 good. Uh, I don't remember what I was gonna say. <laughs> well, it's because I'm a jerk and interrupted you. You're not an interrupting jerk. That is just the layout of a bad joke. Um, you're good. I thought there was like a lot going on in the movie. You know, like there's okay, well, there's like dinosaurs just running around the world, people live with them, and then you got these 
I guess this might be a little bit spoilers for people who haven't seen it, but this these locusts that are ravaging crops that are not from seeds from like this company that's trying to control the food supply. And then, yeah, I don't know. It seemed like there's too much. It could have been simplified a little bit, but it was still like, I didn't think it was awful. I thought it was pretty good. It was decent. Yeah. It was definitely entertaining. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I liked, I liked some of the new dinosaurs that were in her, like introduced, but I, I can't get behind the whole Allosaurus thing. He's a fucking pussy. In my opinion, compared to like T-Rex or Spinosaurus. So I feel yeah. like, you know, they were definitely grasping for other dinosaurs that haven't been really in the spotlight as much as some of the others. But I guess that's just my opinion. I'm not really a big fan of the Jurassic World franchise. I really liked Fallen King- Kingdom because I thought it brought back like the sense of like you're on the edge of your seat kind of a thing uh, with the Endoraptor. So I like that one the best. Yeah, it was, uh, I don't remember much from that one, but this one, like I, I like, there's a couple of like throwbacks. I noticed like the original Jurassic Park movie and there were definitely some parts where like, like I was like, had a little bit of like terror, like, holy crap. Like, you know, it's kind of not like super scary, but like, Man, like that would be scary if I was in that position. It wasn't like over the top and like fake and and stuff. I guess I don't know. Right. I don't know how to explain what I'm thinking. No, I I, I get what you're trying to describe, and I, I would agree with you there. But what about you? How was your uh, your weekend? Or um, it was pretty good. My wife and stepdaughter were out of town. They just got home here a few minutes ago. She had. Uh, dance competition a couple hours uh, north of us up in St. Cloud. Um, they left Thursday night and I've had, I'm watching my dad's dog here. They're out of town. So you might hear her time to time walking by dog paws, clapping on the floor, or might even hear her whining. Uh, so I apologize for that. Hopefully it won't be too noticeable, but uh, um, so I was home with the dog. I worked yesterday and then came home and played some Skyrim for a while. I haven't played any video games in a while. And then I uh, went to a buddy's house and we watched Doctor Strange, Madness of the Multiverse, which was kind of, a, it was interesting. And then we <laughs> watched Jackass Forever after that, which was <laughs> a lot of dicks. I can only imagine. I feel like each Jackass movie, there's more dicks. It was, uh, uh, it's one of those you just have to see. <laughs> um, I think I'll pass on the wieners, but I'll, I'll still, it was, it. it was funny. And, uh, and a lot of the stuff was just like, uh, you couldn't pay me enough money to do any of this stuff. None of it. <laughs> yeah. I know that, uh, the lady was watching, watching the, uh, the new Dr. Strange movie and I, I wasn't paying attention. I have a hard time with Marvel movies or superhero movies. It just, they're just so overdone to me, but I get the appeal. I understand why people like them, but I just, I have a hard time relating. You just, uh, you, you don't want to escape reality, huh? 
I don't know if it's about escaping reality. I just like, I don't know. It just feels like old. It just feels like the crusted sock underneath your bed, you know. Uh, that's just my opinion. Like I said, I, I understand why people like them, but it's just like, how many Thor movies are we going to have? Like, or well, how many Hulk three movies at are least. we going to have? <laughs> well, there's another one coming. There was It was in the preview uh, for the, the Jurassic World movie we watched last night. So yeah, Love and Thunder. That'll be the uh, third one. I thought there was already three. I don't. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe that is. I don't know. There's so many of them. Yeah, it's hard R- to keep. Right, track. right, and I don't. I don't know. It's just like. But you know. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. You're right. I think it will be the fourth because yeah, there was the original one, and then there was Dark World, and then Ragnarok. I don't remember what the third one was called. Oh yeah, Ragnarok. That's the one that had the Hulk in it. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, what do you say we? Uh, start talking about this book we've been reading here for uh what 14 15 weeks here Mm, yeah yes let's uh before before i get into it i just want to let everybody know that listens that my neighbor who pounds on the wall is finally moving so i am so we are excited about this i am so fucking ecstatic like it's about time so uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's hit it. I guess you wanna you wanna take her away, a better place. <laughs> sure thing. We have uh, we kind of have uh, two. Yeah, what are they called again? Epigrams. Epigraphs. Epigraphs. You were close. So I guess we have one. We have one for the uh, new subbook here, and then we have one for the chapter. So. The uh, one for the subbook here reads, Beyond these thin hide walls, a child sits before her on worn silk. A deck is arrayed. She cannot yet speak, and the scenes before her, she's never seen, she's never before seen in this life. The child gazes upon a lone card named Obelisk. The stone gray, she can feel its roughness in her mind. Obelisk stands buried in a grassy knoll, like a knuckle protruded from the earth, past and future. This child's eyes are wide with terror, for cracks have appeared in the stone of stones, and she knows the shattering is begun. Silver Fox, Outrider, Perlokel, Sixth Army. Um, just reading that, I feel like, well, I guess maybe we can come back to that since we haven't talked about it yet. Um, but the epigraph for the chapter says, I saw them on the shores, the deepening pits of their gaze, vowed immortal war against the sighing calm of jagged seas. Gothos Folly. So section one of, uh, well, this will be episode 15, right? Chapter 14. We have Adjunct Norn feeling the exhaustion and tiredness slip away from her. She was not used to feeling carelessness, and it had left her a little bit shaken. The Gadrobi Hills on the horizon, the Gadrobi Hills were appeared on the horizon. If they were successful at the Jagat Barrow, then everything else would almost assuredly be a success at what, as well. Tool wouldn't shut the fuck up. Though he talked about many things, he would not divulge any information that would be important to the Empire. She could feel something coming, 
for the eye mask, and maybe it was connected to the barrel. That was a spooky thought. Tool said in his years that he's come to recognize human emotions and that she's been frowning for a few days, and he wondered if that was significant. Lauren snaps at him and says, it's not. She says what is significant is that she doesn't know enough about what they're doing. How had this barrow not been found in 3,000 years of hunting? Tool says they will find the stone that marks the barrel, but the barrel will not be there. Lauren doesn't understand. Tool explains he is born of an elder worn, Talan. It is not only a source of magic, it is also a time. So Lauren asks if the barrow exists in a different time than theirs. Tool says, no, there is no parallel time different from their own. That time is gone, but is more like a different flavor. He says the Jagat who entombed the tyrant are from a different elder Warren, but quote, elder is a relative term to the Warrens of this age. Jagat, Amtos, Felak is not elder when compared to Telan. They are the same flavor. The barrow has not been found because it is Amtos Felak, a Warren now lost to this world. But Tools Warren, Tools Telan Warren touches Amtos Felak, and he can reach it. Any Telan IMS could. But he was chosen because he has no clan. He is completely alone. Well, why is this important? Because freeing the tyrant could be devastating. If it doesn't listen or escapes their control, it could destroy the entire continent. It could enslave all life and would do so if it was permitted. If a bone caster had been selected instead of tool, the tyrant could enslave the bone caster and it would be virtually unstoppable, probably killing many of the gods as well. So if tool was enslaved, since he has no clan, it would not have any, any effect beyond him would not affect any of his blood kin. So Lawrence says that tool is expendable. Tool replies that this is correct. Lauren asks how they can control it. They don't, and that is a big gamble. And that the Lord of Moonspawn will have to intervene. He might be capable of stopping the tyrant, but it will, will be at a large cost to, to him and weaken the Lord of Moonspawn severely. But he can do the one thing the tyrant fears. He can enslave the tyrant. Great. So the tyrant will work for Lord of Moonspawn. Lord of Moonspawn. No, Tool says. The enslavement would be by his hand, but it is also beyond his control. Lawrence says he is a high mage and tisty Andy. Tool laughs and says he is Anamanda Rake, son of darkness and wielder of Dragnipur. Dragnipur is a sword from the age before light, and that darkness is the goddess of the Tisti Andy. Lauren says that's just great. The Empress sure knows how to pick her enemies, and their pets' heads are falling off too. Tool makes a surprising comment that the Tisti Andy will regret coming to this world. Lauren is like, what? Hold the fuck up. They came to this world? From where and why? The Tisti Andy were of Corald Galane, the Warren of Darkness, and it was alone and untouched. But the goddess, Darkness, grew lonely, so she wanted something outside of herself, and this is how the light was born. The Tisti Andy saw this as a betrayal and rejected her. Some say they left by choice. Others say they were cast out. 
And while the Tisti Andy mages still use the Kuralt Galane Warren, they are no longer of it. They have embraced another Warren, Starval Demolane, the first Warren, who belonged to the dra- dragons. There is so much like world building and like information in this section. I just I loved all of it, and it I feel like it took me a couple of reads to like really understand what is going on. And while I probably may not understand it fully, I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp. What would you think or say? There was, yeah, there was a ton and it was really quite interesting to read. And, and obviously I pared this down. So, uh, you know, somebody who's read this is going to know, or they may remember that there's, you know, more description and everything here, but just, you know, like the coolest thing was, I thought was like, though, this, the stone that will mark the barrel, like just marks it, but it's not really there. And that's uh, kind of what I feel like must be the obelisk in the uh, epigraph for the sub book. That was kind of my thought after reading it. Um, that's what I thought. You know, this, too. and then, you know, we get all this news, you know, this, we've seen some pretty powerful people in this book already. Tayshren, um, even uh, Hairlock, you know, all pretty powerful. But this tyrant could destroy the whole continent, could enslave every little, every living thing. And, you know, Anamanda Rake, maybe the most powerful character that we've come across so far, I kind of think. He's kind of coming um, that we fit. Yeah, to be revealed as as yeah yeah. You know that we've at least met in person. I, I think he must be the strongest. Um, you know, and and he might have a shot at controlling this tyrant, <laughs> but maybe not too. You know, like this thing could kill like gods with ease. It sounds like, uh, it, yeah. It's just it's all wild. Yeah, and it just. My my question is is like well maybe it's not really a question but more of a comment on like kind of seems like maybe a suicide mission doesn't it it doesn't seem like they're going in with really any type of knowledge which you know goes back to some of the previous chapters where I think it was Baruch in his conversations with I would imagine Krupp was you know basically like you know it's not it's not good like it's been unsuccessful in hands of those who could not control it and there were devastating consequences you know so i i don't imagine things going well yeah i it's almost i feel like they're playing russian roulette with a loaded gun like a fully loaded gun right like this this isn't going to go well, and we know it, but we're still going to pull the trigger and see what happens. Right, yeah. Like, yeah, so I guess, yeah, that's a better way to put it than, like, a suicide mission, because there's there's still a chance with Russian roulette. Not a good chance. No, definitely not a good chance. But, um, and, you know, uh, there's another section in this book that'll kind of tie back into some of the information here, which uh, we'll, we'll eventually get to. But um, I just thought it was cool, the whole explanation of the, the Talan Warren and the Jag Huts Warren, uh, the whole flavor thing. 
you know, I guess I just always go back to like, you know, fruit versus like artificial drinks, you know, kind of different things, but still along the same, like quote unquote flavor. Right. But it's still like, I, I feel like it's, it's definitely a neat way to describe it, but it doesn't, I don't feel like it totally makes sense either yet. And maybe, you know, in later books, it'll make more sense, but uh, it's, it certainly was a, a cool way to describe something. Yeah. It was a very interesting way. And, you know, Steven Erickson is, is great with the way that he uses words and I'm absolutely fascinated by it. And I wish that I could speak like that uh, just in, in normal conversation, but uh, I guess the way that I interpret it was that they exist on like the same plane, but they were just accessed by different people. But through proximity, uh, those other people were able to see or sense or tap into those other Warrens that were not their own, which makes sense because, you know, being that they're elder Warrens, those who use more, I guess, modern Warrens wouldn't have any way of knowing because they're completely different flavors or having a way to tap into it, you know? Right. Unless they go the hairlock route, which that was also kind of a Russian roulette move. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I guess. I don't know that I have a a ton else on, you know, I mean, other than like, you should probably just read this, (laughs) read this book (laughs) and read this stuff. Yeah. I guess. uh, Did you have any like thoughts about uh, the darkness, the Corald Galen and the Tistiande? You know, how Tool was explaining how the Tissiande were not from here. Did you have any thoughts on that at all? Just, it was just almost like they lived in like a void. Well, I kind of get like, I don't know, Big Bang is probably the wrong way to explain it, but it kind of seems like the Tissiande or uh, just, you know, the I guess the Queen of Darkness, right? Just, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, there's nothing more to it, but you know, the way that I deduce it is like darkness, lonely, sad, depressed. So her wanting more from herself to essentially betray who it is that follows her to create something, the exact polar opposite of herself, which is light. And then people getting pissed off and feeling betrayed, switching to a completely different warren or you know flavor of magic uh i I just thought that was cool and 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 again it kind of reveals more of kind of like the backstory to the tistiandi and i can only imagine that anamander rake being the son of darkness is the son of the queen who made light itself yeah well i mean he (laughs) <laughs> when I was reading this, you know, it said son of darkness. I just like, oh, he's Ozzy Osbourne, except he's clearly not because he's this big hulking black guy and Ozzy Osbourne's about as white as you can get. But they're both called the son of darkness, I suppose. Um, Maybe there'll be a reference to him eating a bad head later on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Maybe. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, 
you know, the son of darkness and darkness is the goddess. So yeah, it's, I feel like that's pretty logical and makes sense. Right. But here's my question is did Anamander Rake stay with the uh, Kuralde Galane Warren or does he use the Star Valad Demolane Warren or both? Because he clearly has a sword, Dragon Purr, which from what I understand was forged in darkness based on the previous chapter. So even though it has like dragon give or take in the word itself, I don't actually think that it is related to the dragon Warren of the Starvalad Demolane. I guess I had not really thought of that. I think of weird shit. That's just what I do when I read. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I wonder if blah, blah, blah. I love hearing your ideas. (laughs) They're pretty far-fetched. And I'm probably way off. But yeah, I don't know. I just... I think it's interesting that, you know, I'm starting to get the feeling based on the very beginning of this chapter that dragons actually do exist because we've got Cole drunkenly talking about them. We've got Krupp reading some manuscript that describes them. We've got the sword dragon purr, which, again, probably doesn't relate to them. And then we're also told by Tool in this section that the Warren, the Tissiande now used because of the Queen Darkness's betrayal belonged to dragons so did they did they take over this warren and then like did they enslave dragons like are are yeah i guess i i don't i don't know i guess that's just kind of where my my train of thought rolls so it's very likely based on this information i would confidently deduce that there are dragons on moonspawn and I think Anamanda Ray or somewhere at, at the very least somewhere. Right. Yeah. So I'm excited to see when they get introduced. Um, hopefully I'm not wrong or way off, but yeah, I think it'll be exciting. We'll just have to do what we keep doing. Read and find out. That's right. That's all you can do. Or you could just listen to us. Or you could just listen to us. Yes. I mean, I feel that our summaries are are great and wonderful and all that, but at the end of the day, they're just summaries. I'm sure that there's probably some very important things that uh, we leave out because they don't really belong in a summary. So I'd recommend reading and listening to us. Yeah. Yes. I agree. But yeah, um, uh, I'm ready to move on if you have no further thoughts on this first section. No. I don't really have any other thoughts other than like, I just keep getting like the thoughts that Animand Rake's just like an absolute badass. I mean, obviously we've seen he's pretty fucking badass already, but like, I feel like it's we're just gonna keep seeing more things and we're like, like holy crap, who's messing with this guy? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, like who's gonna be able to stand up to Animand Rake? Who's gonna be able to take him down, so to speak? Like, he's called the Son of Darkness. Like, kind of sounds like you're, like, top of the class. Right, and it kind of, I mean, now that you're talking about it, it kind of seems like he's got, like, you know, what I would consider a triple threat, right? He's got a sword forged in darkness before I can assume that there was even light. So it's old as fuck. And it sounds like this sword takes and enslaves souls, right? 
um, based on the last chapter. He is a high mage and he's the son of darkness. So I feel like he's definitely got a lot of abilities, which going back to the siege on pale kind of makes that seem even more fucked up in a way, right? Knowing how powerful he really is just kind of aligns or brings more, I guess, to me, more vision of the destruction that actually happened at pale. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I agree. But yeah, I guess with that, we can move on to this, uh, this next section here. Yeah. I think, uh, we both had some pretty decently long sections here to start out, and then they kind of go back and forth a little bit after that. So this will be probably a, a little bit of a quicker episode, but that's okay. Yeah, I, I think so, still too. Plenty, still plenty to unpack. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I feel like there was only five sections in here, and I feel like you got three, whereas I got two. So... So I'll go sometimes. <laughs> That's true. But um, yeah. So this next section, uh, Marilio halted his mule. Krupp and Crocus were ahead, already re reaching the worry crossroads. He turned to look behind and saw Call. Marilio sighs and thinks to himself how miraculous Call's decision to join them was. His thoughts travel to what Call could potentially do if he found out about Marilio and Ralic's plan and wonders if Call has suspected anything. Call adorned in his armor appeared and a bastard sword appeared almost nightly. Call catches up to Marilio and they encourage their mounts forward and catch up to the group ahead. When they do, Krupp is talking and annoyingly expressing his opinion on the journey ahead. Krupp was telling Crocus to not look so glum and to look at things as a mighty adventure. Crocus threw up his hands in frustration, telling the group that he doesn't understand what they're even doing out there and why he agreed to come along was beyond him. Virilio addresses Crocus by attempting to capture his intrigue and telling Crocus that he has always been interested in their dealings outside of the city. Crocus replies that he was under the understanding that they all work for a merchant, but he doesn't see a fucking merchant out here. Crocus, being a whiny little bitch, goes on to complain about how they are all riding mules outside of coal, and why didn't anybody give him a sword? Marilio laughs or chuckles at this, but pleads for Crocus to stop his bitching, and explains that they are indeed agents for a merchant, and that this particular adventure is them seeking an unusual type of merchandise uh, that they are acquiring. Krupp interjects and explains to Krakus that they are out here on behalf of their employer, Alchemist Baruch. Krakus indignantly rebuttals by asking Krupp why Master Baruch couldn't afford horses for them all. Krupp, Krupp talks about a mishap with someone at the stable and begins to explain that they are out there to observe only, and that the sword, armor, armor, and even Marilio's rapier were of no use for their mission. Crocus appears to be satisfied, but asks what it is they're supposed to observe. Krupp goes into a long tangent about 
the possibilities of what they would observe. Cole interrupts Krupp during this to ask who has the water skins. Krupp then makes a well-articulated bash on Cole, to which Cole ignores, but then addresses Crocus's complaining by telling him that he is getting paid and that the excitement is the last thing that they are looking for, or any type of excitement is the last thing that they want. He ends by wishing Ralik was there, as he would feel a whole lot better. Crocus, still being a salty bitch, takes offense to this and downplays himself in the process. Call rudely reassures Crocus that with his skills as a thief, those skills are valuable, unlike himself or even Marilio, and with a verbal jab back at Krupp, which would make Crocus the most qualified to be there. Krupp makes a comment about his talents with his brain and his intelligence, striking back another jab of mockery towards Call. Call ignores this again to whisper to Crocus that the reason he's wearing all this armor is because when Krupp is in charge, he doesn't feel safe unless he's prepared for war. Crocus then asks the group, what is it that they're supposed to be looking for? Marilio explains to Crocus that they'll know when they see it and nods to the hills rising in the east. After a time of silence, Crocus kind of like understands and says, Gadrobi Hills? Are we following a rumor? Marilio stiffened, but it was Krupp that responded and answered the question. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I had a lot. Well, maybe not a lot, but I had a few things with this section. Um, but did you have any thoughts? I remember when I was reading this that, God, where was it? Um, oh, when they're talking about what they were looking for. I feel like everybody must be kind of looking for this marker, right? For the, the barrel. I mean, that was kind of the sense that I got. Yeah, I at this point, everybody's trying to find the tyrant. Right. That seems to be kind of where the story is like. And I feel like being that the story is, is pointing everybody to the spot that if I had to predict, there might be some type of standoff. It's going to be like the, the three Spider-Man meme. Everybody just like, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's where we're going. Yeah, or you know, this uh, could be kind of pointing to uh, Whiskey Jack's card game and the whole, you know, standoff that was happening, and Whiskey Jack having the thought to himself, like, is this is this trying to tell me something? So maybe Whiskey Jack will be somehow into the fold with this as well yeah very well possible but uh, um i didn't have a ton of thoughts from what i remember on this one gotcha no worries just it's you know it's kind of a lot of a lot of like chatter i guess you know um but it's it's not like in the first section where we're getting all this you know, world building and things that happened and, you know, this caused this type deal. It's just kind of like an in-the-moment conversation. Right. I mean, I feel like I really enjoyed this section, and I know and recognize that to some reading it, it may seem kind of boring. But the reason I appreciate it is for the fact that it gives us more of a sense of the dynamic between these characters and like their friendship 
Like, I get the feeling that either Krupp and Call have some type of animosity towards each other, or, like most friends, right, they just kind of pick on each other for humor's sake. So, you know, and, and Croc is kind of being a whiny bitch. I feel like that has a lot to do with his interaction with uh, Chalice. Is it Chalice? That was the maiden's name? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he's maybe a little like butthurt or sore from that interaction because she laughed at him. So I feel like he's kind of already in this was already in this like dark kind of who am I? I don't want to be a thief. I want to marry this. I'm in love with this maiden and then dealing with the rejection and then being told that they need he needs to accompany these his friends on this quest outside of the city. Yeah, he, I mean, he kind of got embarrassed by her, or she, you know, she embarrassed him, and yeah, that's that's gonna sting a little bit. So, I guess it just it it ties into some other things, but it also like instead of it just being this like action packed section, it's very like almost camaraderie and like interactivity between characters that just kind of like progress their relationship with each other, which I think is important because it gives, it brings humanity to this group, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think you and I both know we're not going to have just action packed after action packed chapter. There's going to be things like this that slow down a little bit and, you know, build up that bond. Right. And this is why kind of unrelated, but related, like, I guess some readers could maybe interpret this little section as like a slog section. I really hate that term. I really do not like slog. And I know that it gets a lot of, like, especially with the wheel of time, you know, books I've seen seven through 10, I've seen book 10 specifically. Like there's so many, ways that slog has been used to describe you know an author or author's works and i i I, yeah maybe it might have been boring for you but what are what are you looking for you actually reading or are you just like skating by because you're not entertained so what is it that you're missing because you're not because at face value, it's maybe boring or uninteresting to you, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've had anything really drawn out yet. I mean, we're two thirds of the way through this book here, roughly three quarters. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really think we've had anything that I would classify as a slog yet. You know, it's things have always been moving forward. Things haven't really come to a standstill or anything. Right. Yeah. No. And, and I totally agree. I'm just saying that, you know, some of the like posts that I've seen about, you know, people not understanding this book, they've used that word, not as much as like with the wheel of time, but I've definitely seen it come up um, a few times when that is part of their frustration is that it's not, pack 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 full of action every chapter so i'm just i just appreciate it because it it makes the characters more relatable to me yeah yeah they it makes them feel more real and like you know you're you're getting to know this person like you know you're getting to know a friend 
Right, exactly. Like one of the things that um, I notated about this section was Krupp's first bash kind of happens right as Call interrupts him about the water skins and Krupp. And I just thought this was a clever way of taking a stab at Call's alcoholism. He Krupp makes the comment about him consuming all the water. And with the unnecessary armor, the sweat that, like the salty sweat, would appear on Call's forehead, and what poisons would be in it? (laughs) I did not pick up on that at all. Yeah, it was just, it was a very interesting way to say you drink too much. What's pouring out of your sweat because of that? You know, there's so many different ways that he could have made that a punch at Call. But this was the way that Erickson decided to describe his alcoholism. I just thought that that was really clever. Uh, And also when Krupp kind of rebuttals to Call again about um, his, like Call kind of like questioning his, his intelligence, Krupp responds with like, yeah, I have great talents with using my brain and my, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Call makes a a jab at Krupp about uh, always stuffing his face or anything that he can fit into his mouth. <laughs> and that seems to be the only talent that Krupp possesses. And then Krupp comes back with, no, no, I use my brain and intelligence, unlike you, Call, is pretty much what I got from that. So... That's kind of where I'm like, do they have animosity between each other? Or is this just like a, you know, how dudes make fun of each other in a friend group kind of a thing, you know? It might even kind of border on on both of those. It might, you know, a little bit of both. Yeah. Because I know that, I mean, I feel like it's safe to say that call. uh, Well, no, that was actually something that we didn't talk about last chapter that we should have. Um, so I guess kind of going back, we know that call for sure, uh, was married to lady Simtel that we were right in our prediction that call was from, was married to a rich woman. Yep. You called that. Yeah. I, uh, I got some gratification from that one when I read it and I apologize that we didn't talk about it. We just just totally forgot to talk about that. I thought maybe we did, but we couldn't remember the lady's name. Or maybe we did. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm doubting myself. I feel <laughs> like we didn't, but I think it's just because we got you know caught up like we always do in in talking about what what's transpiring. I guess uh, I don't remember if we did or not, but I for some reason it's it feels a little familiar in my head. But maybe I. Who knows? I guess we'd have to listen. Go back and listen. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I feel like we did talk about it, but I don't think we recorded the conversation. I think it was part of oh, like that's entirely possible. Yeah, it's all good. No worries. I guess the other thing that I had, which has nothing to do with the relationship building here, is what exactly is a bastard sword? I think that. It has to do with like the length of the sword. Is that short or long or like for some reason, I just can't visualize what a bastard sword would be based on the meaning of both words. Yeah. I think it's, it's a longer sword. Um, 
probably more like a two-handed. You know, you could probably swing it with one hand, but it might be better off with two. Is it just one of those things where, like, if you're fighting somebody, you're like, fucking bastard? <laughs> I am not a sword expert by any means, but I I think it has something to do with how, either, like, how long, like, the handle is or how long the blade is or something like that. Got it. Okay, well, I'll just, yeah, maybe we'll find out more. Yeah, I guess the only other thing that, I'm curious about is is why Ralic isn't there because in previous chapters as they were discussing this plan it kind of sounded like Baruch really wanted Ralic to be there so I'm curious as to why he's not because I was under the assumption and that he would be with this group as they went out to the Gondrovi Hills yeah he was supposed to but something's going to be going on in the city that he, you know, he wanted to stick around and make sure things were going right. So yeah, I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah. I wonder if it has anything to do with the aftermath of like the assassins war or yeah, it could be, you know, the events with the Tisti Andi assassins and just kind of clean up, I guess is what I go to. Yeah. I think that's a good word for it. Oh Yeah. I guess those are the only things that I really enjoyed about uh, this section. We ready to move on? We're ready. All right. This one will be pretty short here. Sorry was in no hurry as she left through Jamet's gate. She did not need to keep the coin bearer in line of sight to track him. She could sense Crocus and Krupp and two others past Worrytown, and they did not seem to be in a rush. Sorry was sure they were spies, and whatever they were doing was for Daruzistan. She thought it was a group capable of mostly protecting the coin bearer, but they wouldn't be able to stop her. Something still bugged her, though. She felt like they were headed towards trouble, which would also threaten her. Once she was beyond Worrytown, she picked up her pace. Soon she was alone on the road, and she disappeared into her warren of shadow. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's maybe some foreshadowing in here with the whole, she's picking up on something and I'm, I'm just curious if maybe like she gets caught in a crossfire and maybe it's a sorry, no more sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I think this is just. Maybe I don't I'd want to say confirmation, but more speculation that um, that that we're gonna get these three groups meeting together at the barrel or or somewhere along the way, and it's it might get kind of messy. Yeah, I feel like yeah, Lauren and Tool are probably gonna be interrupted while doing this by you know Crocus and his whining ass and the group protecting him but also we know that opon is or crocuses is opon's you know i guess pawn or chess piece so how much is that going to influence what happens uh in in the coming chapters but if sorry is following them and they are following uh or they're headed into the Gondrovi Hills looking for this barrel, which, you know, at this point we know Lauren and Tool at this point in the chapter are also seeking. So 
something is converging and what happens i guess is anybody's guess but i'm really looking forward to to, to reading what happens or what takes place i think it'll be messy knowing the uh tone of this book around that kind of stuff i would totally agree the I guess the one the one question I had out of this is when Sari goes into her Warren, where do you think she's going? Ooh, that's good. I didn't pick that up. I mean, like I picked up that you know she went into her Warren. Um, I guess because I don't think she's just going to use that to travel like a couple miles to catch up to him. You know, very true. But. I guess I just go back to when Hairlock was on the plane headed towards Darugistan, how he would, how the great ravens that he was attacking described him as like, like jumping into his warren, like as he was hiding. I'm wondering if that's maybe what Sari is doing. Like she's just, like she doesn't need to keep sight of them. Like she can clearly track them. So maybe she can do it from her warren too and just kind of like follow in her warren while being disguised or hidden. Yeah, that could be. Or const- just staying out of right. harm's way. Or potentially um, like conversing with a manis in Shadow Thrones realm. Kind of like discussing yeah, or talking next steps. That's a very good thought. Yeah, good question. I didn't think that far on that one. That was my, probably my biggest takeaway, I think, from that part. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. That was a big takeaway. What is she doing in her warren? Guess we'll we'll find out, or maybe we won't. <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. She'll just pop out. Yeah, she's just gonna. Well, oh, you know what? I have an idea now. Ooh, what is it? Well, it's. We'll have to. Can't talk about it yet. Okay. Well. Because I think it, it relates to my last section, I think. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, we can swing back. I feel like we do an okay job with that. So, yeah, if you want to take your section here. All right. Adjek Lorne approached a hill. The land around her was similar. Nothing to really be set apart. Uh, above the hill, ravens wheeled. Lorne watched as Tool strolled ahead of her. She slumped in her saddle as the mugginess of the day had gotten to her. She knew it wasn't Opon's doing, but a dread that hung in the air, the sense that what they were doing was terribly wrong. To unleash this Jaghut tyrant into the hands of one of Malazan's enemies, to trust Anamander Rake to destroy it, seemed absurd and ambitious. Tool at the base of the hill waited for the adjunct to arrive. Between his feet, Lorne saw the gray rock jutting from the earth. Tool explains that this is the Jaghut Barrow. Lorne questions the size of the stone, like one would question the size of a person's dick riding in a giant-ass truck. Tool explains to her that the stone has been there for many reasons, telling her that the rock was much larger than it appeared. Lorne sensed some anger in Tool's response and dismounted her horse. She asks how long that they would have to stay there. Tool replies until the evening passes, and tomorrow he will open the way. Lorne looks at the ravens wheeling above her, recalling that they had been with the pair for days. Shrugging this off, she prepares her camp, finds dry wood to build a fire, 
As the evening approached, she found a high hill and ascended to its peak. Lauren surveys the land and then sits down and waits for nightfall. It would be easy to spot campfires at this time for anyone in the surrounding area. As night fell, she walked around the summit of the hill to stretch her legs. Observing evidence of previous excavations, as well as Gadrobi herders, from as far back as to when they fashioned stone tools. On the south side, she noticed a cavern used as a quarry of some kind. Curious, she investigates further. As she crouches onward, she finds a flint spear tip, expertly crafted. She needed no further proof of the eye assertions that humans had come from the eye Sitting down in the quarry and leaning against the wall, Lauren starts to think to herself, thoughts of the legacy of the Talan flowing like blood through human muscle and bone. Were they destined to become the human version of the Talan? Was war all there was? Her thoughts continue with the Talan and the Jaghut. According to Tool, what had the Jaghut been? They had been abandoned. They had abandoned the concept of government, turned their backs on empires and armies and on the cycles of rise and fall, fire and rebirth, dismissive of communities, of purposes greater than themselves. Lorne realizes that the Jaghut wouldn't have started the war. With tears welling in her eyes, she says to herself, Oh, Lucine, why we fear this Jaghut tyrant? Because he became human like us. He became like us. He enslaved, he destroyed, and he did it better than we could. She fell silent, letting the tears roll down her face. She wondered why she cried. Was it for her or Lucine? Was it for our kind? It didn't matter, as such tears have been shed before and will be shed again. I thought it was kind of unique that, you know, this everything that we've read about Lauren, she's been just kind of described as this like hard, emotionless person, right? And here she is crying. So it's kind of unique, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like, I feel like it's pretty, like, the section's pretty deep, in my opinion. Because Lorne realizes in, like, her self-reflection that the way that Tool has described the Jaghut is that it's unlikely that they have started this war with other elder races, right? Like, we know that uh, it was the Jaghut, the Talan, and... Uh, I forget what the other one was. The one that wasn't interested and just kind of like walked away. Um, which this ties in nicely to her thoughts about the Talan and humans being descendants from them. It makes me think of the saying, if you ignore history, it's doomed to repeat itself. I think that this is alluding to the Talan starting wars as they were not always the undead, but an elder race of humans. So I guess before that they were raised undead, they were humans. They were like an elder race of humans. Died, and then for whatever reason, through magic or sorcery, have come this raised undead army. So I think that is what Lauren is is having maybe an issue with and is questioning like 
are we just doomed to repeat the mistakes of these elder races because if we if we are like what tool has said descendants from talan that only that just makes me associate that like the talan aren't necessarily anything special they're just they're just humans risen from the grave i guess they're just uh smart zombies yeah. <laughs> right. burns no not brains war yeah yeah it's definitely it's a uh, kind of it's definitely a little bit heavy chapter and, and dark for sure yeah yeah i would totally agree i mean i felt and i know uh i know that she talks about the sense of dread kind of hanging in the air earlier on in the section um i thought it was interesting though after reading the section I could sense the dread. Like I felt dreadful for Lorne. And it just made me empathize with her a bit, kind of like what you were saying. It gives her that humanity similar, kind of similar to like the, the story of her in the mouse quarter, right? Like I remember feeling bad when I read that, you know, as a reader, you kind of don't want to like Lorne, but you also see that she has like the soft and vulnerable side. It's pretty small, but it's there. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's just, I find it interesting that, you know, you want to not like Lauren, but you have this small, small sense of, of doubt as to whether, you know, who she is as a character, I guess. What else did you feel or think on this? Um, I feel like we get a, an exact plan on what it is that Lucine is trying to do and it just makes so much sense to me a, a very risky one but hoping to release the Jaghut tyrant upon the world to potentially destroy and enslave just to hopefully hopefully weaken Anamanda Rake enough so that the Malazan High Mages can destroy him in his weakened state I just thought it was super ballsy and kind of super high risk. It makes me really question Lucene. But at the end of the day, as we've talked about, Anomander Rake doesn't seem to have too many formidable opponents. So this, it, it just, it, it, it fell into place for me. It makes sense as to why they're taking this huge risk is because Lucene doesn't have anybody to throw against him. So why not release a Jaghut Tyrant? I have the tool, <laughs> literally, to make that happen. And I guess uh, if, well, I don't know. It doesn't look good for the, you know, kind of the, the common folk, though, does it? Because either way, there's going to be a pretty nasty fight coming. That's probably going to involve a lot of people. So either... I kind of feel like, you know, yeah, you're, the plan that you put out there makes sense to me. So either you're going to end up more or less enslaved to the empire or you're going to be enslaved to the tyrant. <laughs> right. Either way, it's the shit end of the stick. Uh, but yeah, 
it just goes to show how reckless and selfish Lucene is. Like, she doesn't give a shit about anybody but conquering the Malazan Empire or expanding the Malazan Empire. She will do anything to. Yeah. And there might not be many people left at the end of it. Which, you know, no, no loss to her, right? Like, she's out of harm's way. Yeah, well, maybe if the tyrant wins, then uh, she might be in, in trouble then, too. I don't know. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. So, but I mean, if that's your only option, what else do you do, right? You have a, an opponent that is basically, like, contesting you with every city you're trying to siege, which... Again, asshole move. But it's just, it's nice to kind of read like the backstory as to all of the things that unfold. Yeah, it's it's nice to know that information for sure. Yeah, it just, it makes, it makes the payoff so much worthwhile. And I know that, again, we haven't finished the book, but I know I just remember having a lot of questions about these things at the very beginning of the book, you know? Yeah. And yeah, we're starting to see some of them. So hopefully I'm sure that'll continue. Yeah, I think so too. I am. I feel a lot more confident doing these summaries because I feel like I understand. I've been following along, so to speak. So like it, everything's just clicking into place. Um, I guess another thing that I thought was cool was the way that tool explains how long the stone has been there. He doesn't just give like this generic number, like anybody, any other author could. He explains that it stood long before the sheets of ice covered the land. And it stood when the Rivy plain was covered in water, but has receded to become Lake Azure. So just with those two sentences alone, I mean, based on, I guess, one's fundamental understanding of history can kind of visualize like how old the stone has been standing there. Yeah, it's gone through a freaking ice age. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and it, I mean, it, the, the stone itself seems kind of unremarkable, right? Like, it's just, you know, it, it sounds like it's almost any other rock sticking up like no wonder it hasn't been found. You know, it's something you'd probably trip over if you were just walking by. Right. Yeah. And I know that, you know, all around this rock are, you know, little holes that have been dug in search of the barrow for however long the rumor is. Well, that's probably as long as the stone, you know. Right. But, um, yeah, I guess that's all really the thoughts that I had on this section. I don't think I've got any either. Any additional thoughts on top of your own there? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess uh, we can move on to our last section. All right. Guess who's back? It's Paran. Hey, we were talking about wanting to see him last week. So yep. we get a, a little glimpse at him yes, here. Yes, we were. I know we talked about that. I remember that for sure. <laughs> yeah. So Paran is Paran. 
He looked at Tok and asked if he had a theory on what they've been seeing. Tok has no clue, but they've seen 11 roasted birds in the last three hours. So it would appear that they were following someone particularly nasty. Even flies were not flocking to these dead birds. So Paran says it must be sorcery. Tuck doesn't understand why the adjunct and IMAST are traveling so slowly. They must know that they're being followed. Um, I get the sense that they're referring to something else following, following them. And I'm trying to think back because we didn't feel like it must be Hairlock that's trying to track him down. We can talk about that after I'm done reading. Brent says she's an arrogant woman, and with an eye mass along, why should she worry? Tox's power draws power, and as he says this, he has a flash of light in his head. Kind of like I imagine like you're almost getting a migraine headache. It keeps changing, and he can almost make out an image. Brand has been pushing them hard, and even though they have an extra horse, they were almost done for. It was clear to talk that Paran wanted to catch up to Lorne and the IMAS. He thought driven by vengeance. With Lorne dead, Paran's command would be safe, and he could meet back up with Whiskey Jack, provided they were still alive. Though Tuck did have his doubts about the plan. Would Paran's sword be a match for the IMAS? Magic didn't work on them. They'd be chopped up to bits to kill them. They came across another bird, and Tok rubbed his scar, producing another image in his mind. He nearly fell off his horse, but this time he could see the image. A small shape moving incredibly fast. It was just a blur. The horses screamed, and a tear opened in the air. In the tear, he saw a swirling darkness. Then it was gone. Somehow, Perrin didn't notice any of this. How could this be, he thought. Then the answer came to him. It was a warren. He caught up to Paran and said they were walking into a trap. Paran casually says to be prepared. Tox says it will come by way of warren. They thought Paran looked eager for this. Even his sword, named Chance, looked eager. So this was kind of my thought here from before. Um, I wonder if what he's seeing is sorry. But at the same time, I don't remember her being described as being able to move that fast. So I also kind of, you know, it could, is it hairlock? But just with the swirling darkness and sorry going into her warren of shadow, that seems to make more sense to me in my head. Ooh, I didn't even consider sorry. That's a good point. I'm leaning towards hairlock because of the roasted birds. Yes, I I do agree with that. I mean, that makes sense. He was shooting them out of the sky. And, I mean, I didn't get... I, I mean, you summarized it, but I could swear that during my read... my One of my read-throughs of this chapter, in his vision or image that he sees, I, I want to say that the word tiny figure was used. So... I think that's what also is making me think that it's it's Hairlock that is maybe setting a trap. Like maybe Hairlock has been observing them following Lorne 
Um, but that's 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 what that's what I'm gonna stick with is that it's it's hairlock. Because I think that's probably more likely. I mean, it was just you know when we were going over that last section, you know, and I was wondering where sorry went. It just kind of dawned on me, you know, remembering this part. And I thought maybe it could be a possibility, but I I do think Hairlock seems to make more sense as well. But I mean, it's also not all out of the realm of possibility. Uh, I mean, it's not. We don't get a, a whole lot of description as to what is coming out of this warren. I mean, we have two entities that are essentially in a warren right now, more conclusively with Sari than Hairlock. But I feel like the roasted birds are. Hairlock. I don't know why he would why he would do that. I mean I mean I know he's crazy and he's mad. So maybe it he has something against birds. Uh I, I don't know. I yeah. I'm I would put my money on on Hairlock. But like I said, it was just kind of a fleeting thought that came into my head. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. And it very well could be both, right? Uh, sorry, and Hairlock could pop out of their warrens, but I know Hairlock doesn't like Paran, so I, I feel like if he's been observing them tracking Morn, because he was also on his way to Jerugistan, so the possibility of them, you know, seeing each other would totally make sense to me. I, I kind of forgot about how much Hairlock does dislike Paran, so yeah, I, I think all signs are kind of pointing to that. Yeah, but I feel like the whole talk noticing that even his sword appeared e eager, you know, this inanimate object appearing eager for whatever is to transpire kind of maybe makes me feel like it's a little, it's alluding a little bit to Opan intervening here. I mean, that's a pretty good thought. So I guess that's just, you know, where, where my, my thoughts go. But uh, I thought uh, talks like headaches or whatever are kind of an interesting thing. Like, you know, is, um, is he become, sorry, the dog's just whining all over right now. Um, is talk, you know, is he becoming a, a seer of sorts? You know, he's getting little flashes of the future here, or you know, maybe he is. So that's something I, I want to see more on. Yeah, and I know that um, from previous chapters, it's a, like, a, not a lore, but, or yeah, I guess lore would make more sense about, you know, because we know Tak has one eye, and apparently the lore in the Seven Cities is that if you have one eye... And I feel like it derives from some type of trauma that you have one eye that you you are given like this, you know, seer type ability. Looking back at reading about that lore in the Seven Cities was a little bit of foreshadowing to kind of what, what's unveiling here. Um, what else? Uh, Anything else that caught your eye in this? No, uh, I feel like a lot of these sections were pretty were pretty short lived, but no, I think the biggest takeaways 
uh, from this last section here is, you know, Tak and, Tak and Paran are definitely headed into some trouble. And, uh, you know, I guess it's anyone's guess as to what's happening or what's going to happen. But I think, I think you're dead on when you, when you say that shit's about to hit the fan, because it definitely feels like that. I feel like I'm just being prepared for something big. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think we'll see some resolution to that in the end of this, by the end of this sub book here. So in the next couple chapters, I'm sure we'll see something. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. But I'm excited to read on. I'm thoroughly enjoying this book. So, and talking about it. Yeah. I've been, it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, I'm ready to get next into the next chapter here. Ready to dive in. Hopefully, I'll be able to read it tonight. So I'm excited to to read the next the next section here. Yeah, me as well. I don't know when I'll get to it here, but hopefully before too long. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, I guess any more followers on Twitter at all? Um, actually, yes, we have gained a couple. We are, let me check here real quick. We're up to 95. Ooh, that's a little bit of a jump. I know that last time I heard we were at like 86 or 87 or something like that. Uh, yeah, I guess I don't remember exactly how many. Yeah, that was, that's, that's, that's exciting. But, uh. Yeah, I, I guess the only other news as far as our social goes, I was able to get our first eight episodes up onto YouTube. So if you would prefer to listen to them on YouTube, they are available. And I usually try to get like two two episodes done a day. Uh, granted, I haven't been very consistent with that, but um, it does take an, an enormous amount of time to get them up there. So um, check us out. So we can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. Yes. And then as far as the socials, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search uh, DNJ's Epic Quest. Um, Twitter's by far the most active. Um, don't seem to get much interaction on Facebook. Looks like there's a little bit on Instagram. I tried messing with that, but not really my thing. Um, but Twitter, we're up to 75 followers now. So we're growing. Um, appreciate everybody following along and having a good time with us. So give us a like, give us a subscribe. <laughs> Um, that definitely helps us in the end. So we appreciate everybody who's been listening. Yeah, for sure. We're yeah, super happy to have everybody on board and, and just, I mean, obviously we love talking about this book and love talking to other people too, but it would be cool to, you know, maybe see a review. Um, you know, I, I'm not pleading for a five-star review or anything like that, but just, uh, you know, some feedback on, on the podcast side of things. Um, I know I listen to some other podcasts and I know they say that, you know, rating and reviewing helps get things out to others. So 
makes it more discoverable. So if anybody wants to do that, whatever you feel is a fair rating um, and just leave us, leave us an honest review. We'd love to read it. Yes, we would. Yes. All right, man. Well, I guess uh, till next time. Talk to you later, bud. Later, man.